Hello, world, and welcome to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. That's me, author of my what-if year, ex-CEO, sometimes intern, coffee-obsessed mom. Extra Shot is a podcast, a talk show, an advice column. It's that and more, but really, it's about bringing some energy, enthusiasm, and insight into your day. Join me and my incredible friends, authors, actors, activists, and even other people whose jobs do not start with the letter A, for a half hour of laughs and delight. Because we all need an extra shot of something. Welcome back, everybody, to Extra Shot. I am your host, Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, an everyday feminist, some might say. I have a really inspiring interview for you today with an incredible woman named Latanya Mapfret, who is the president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women. And she's written a book called The Everyday Feminist that I saw, I read, I loved. And it really got me thinking about how even now the word feminism evokes such a strong response in so many people. I've known a lot of people that I would definitely consider feminists who don't really associate with the word. Also, regrettably, I have known many people who wear it as a badge of pride who may not share the same definition as I do. A lot of you might know that in my pre-what-if-year life, I spent a lot of my career in the philanthropy world. Most of it was focused on figuring out how to direct more money to women and girls. And even in that world, I found a lot of people who didn't like the term feminist. In her book, Latanya Mapfret talks about everyday feminists who meet her definition who may not have self-defined. So I think this is incredibly fascinating. I called my mom just before recording this to ask her if she considered herself a feminist. And she said, yes, I think I would. Sort of a qualified answer. For my own part, I don't remember ever hearing feminism talked about in my house, even though I've considered myself a feminist for as long as I can remember. I am the Spice Girls girl power generation. But I also found out that even the Spice Girls didn't consider themselves feminists back in the day. Apparently, they wrote a book called Girl Power! Exclamation point, which 100% I have to read because I have never heard of it before today. And in that, they wrote that feminism has become a dirty word. Girl power is just a 90s way of saying it. We can give feminism a kick up the arse. And yes, that was arse. So I know it's complicated for some people, and I would love to know your thoughts. You can find me on Instagram and tell me what you think. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I would love to hear more. So before I tell you about today's guest, I just need to give a shout out to my amazing partners at Evolve Me. If you're on a career journey and thinking about a transition, I know from experience that it can feel isolating and overwhelming, especially when you are of a certain age, perhaps. But here's my hot tip on how to figure out what's next. We've got these fabulous partners for the season of Extra Shot, Evolve Me, and they are about to launch their latest cohort of the Reinvention Collective. This is a live virtual 12-week training with a cohort of other women looking to create their next and best chapter in midlife. And Extra Shot listeners, you are getting something special, which is $500 off the tuition for the collective with the code SPECIAL because you are special. So please go sign up. The cohort starts on October 24th, and I know that they would love to have you. So let me tell you about my guest today. 
Latanya Mapfret is president and CEO of Global Fund for Women. And if you haven't heard of them, the Global Fund for Women are a feminist fund that offers flexible support to more than 5,000 groups across 175 countries dedicated to making meaningful change. Previously, she was the executive director of Planned Parenthood Global and worked for eight years as a human rights officer for UNICEF and for 10 years with the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. Ms. Frett served as a delegate to the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing in 1995 and continues to fight for the human rights of women every day. She has received many honors and awards. It would take up this whole podcast to read them all. But a few to highlight are two esteemed meritorious honor awards from the U.S. government and the highest honor in civil service, the Superior Honor Award from the U.S. State Department. She's also the author of the book, The Everyday Feminist, and she is ridiculously impressive. So I hope you enjoy and are inspired by this interview with Latanya Map Fret. Good morning, Latanya. Good morning, Alicia. How are you? <laughs> I am good. I am thinking that this is the first one of these I've ever recorded in the morning because most of my guests are in the U.S. So I have yeah. time to have at least two to three coffees before I have one of these recordings. So I actually need an extra shot today. I was about to say, you didn't have an extra shot? <laughs> Oh boy, let's see how this goes. I'm like I'm a very slow starter in the morning. I like I'd managed to get up, get my children out of the house, but mm-hmm. my husband takes them to school. So I don't get out of pajamas for quite some time <laughs> if I don't have to. And I like almost never put on mascara before nine o'clock. So this was this was a big deal. This is all for you because I'm so excited that you're here. So appreciate that. And I too had to roll out. I'm still on US time, although I'm, you know, in in England dropping a kid off at college, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's it's kind of amazing that we managed to be in the same time zone. And that's you said right. this is your last child drop off at college. Youngest, yeah. And so my partner and I, between us, have four children. And um, this is the youngest. So we are officially um, empty nesters. Oh my God. <laughs> are, are you feeling like, Great. Are you feeling really emotional? It's probably all the things, isn't it? Or do you feel old hat? You've done this three times before. You're like, whatever. <laughs> nope. It's different. I think knowing that you still have a child or two in the pipeline, you know, <laughs> makes you kind of still stay in, in mommy mode. Now, I don't know. I mean, you know what? You never stop doing the mommy thing is what I understand from my mother. But I, I do, you know, all of the other stuff, you know, the school stuff, you know, the you know, all the things that make up, you know, the social life around your children. That I'm kind of like thinking, oh boy, this is going to be the first time in 25 years. So it will be interesting. (laughs) It's going to be exciting, but I'm pretty sure you're going to find a way to fill your time because you have a lot on your plate. You are an incredibly accomplished woman. You have written this amazing book that we're going to talk about today, The Everyday Feminist, which I just loved. And you're like, you're like, oh yeah, I'm in the UK. I got have a board meeting. I have, you know, you you're gonna be (laughs) you're gonna be fine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're gonna be fine. So at the in the in the prelude to your book, which is or the prologue, I guess, which is written by Cecile Richards, she calls you a great listener. Yes. But today I want you to be a great talker. That's what we're doing. Okay. And I want to hear all about it. So your book came out earlier this year. Well, first yeah. of all, like, how has it been? How was the process of like putting a book into the world? Is this your first book? 
Okay. Yes. It is my first okay. book, and um, my intention was not to write about myself at all. The intention originally, what I was trying to sell to the publishers, was a book about my organization, Global Fund for Women. Right. It, it morphed into this after several conversations with publishers over at Wiley, who wanted to do something with me, but did not want to do a book about an organization. And right. so they kept calling me back, and we're like, but. <laughs> do something about you. And I originally thought they meant a memoir, but they were open, they said, you know. So it's this kind of like fun thing, you know, writing about yourself, but writing about it in the context of what you really, really believe Mm -hmm. and where you're seen as a thought leader um, publicly. And so bringing that together took me talking about myself and finding my voice and what I wanted to put out into the world as far as these amazing women that I've met around the world. But then it was also this part about interviewing those who I believe are incredible um, examples for all of us and putting that together with some thought leadership. And then finally, you know, what was the ask? What did you want people to do at the end of that book? So that was the process. And it, it, you know, it took longer than I would have thought. I thought I had a lot that I could just whip out. But I think I have this, well, you know, you've written a book. I don't think it's ever as easy as you think. And, um, and, but that process, I think makes something really special come, come out. Of the different elements. So the kind of personal memoir, the stories about your life and your incredible upbringing, the stories about the everyday feminists who you profile in the book, and Mm -hmm. then the kind of more sort of, it's almost like movement building 101 and Mm -hmm. intersectionality 101. It's like this great primer for all of these incredible concepts that we hear a lot about. And if you don't work in the kind of social good or philanthropy or women and girls space, Mm -hmm. you still hear a lot about them. What, What of those three parts did you find the easiest to write and what was the hardest? Boy, so the easiest part was that kind of, you know, movement 101. It's been, it's because it was, uh, think about it as if you're like in school right now. It's almost like the class, you know, I'm studying that every day. I'm trying to engage. I'm trying to figure out what does it mean to be a social movement? What does that mean when you're talking about things like racial justice and gender justice and other social issues, climate justice? Um, And how are they the same? How are they different? And so that's the kind of life I'm living right now. So that was the easiest part because I'm learning that I'm reading all this stuff and I can bring it into the conversation. The, the, and the, you know, after that was just sort of the interviews with people like Loretta Ross and, you know, and Mariam, you know, those were conversations that not only were easy, were actually just so motivating, you know, I mean, these women always drop these gems and, you know, right in the middle of something, you know, and you're like, Oh, Yes, I'm a, let me get that, you know. Pull so, that quote out. <laughs> so that was that was the fun part. Um, and actually, I had a student do the interviews themselves because I had had conversations with these women. And the suggestion was from the publishers is have someone else actually interview them so you don't lose anything. Because yeah. when you're talking, I mean, you probably know when you're talking to people, you kind of get engaged in it, right? You're having this conversation. But if you, um, you might miss something that they say. So I had a, a wonderful student, Olivia. Um, do the interviews themselves. And I just had the initial conversation. So it was great going through that stuff and picking up all those gems. And, you know, you share so many very personal things about your upbringing, about your family and the story. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey to becoming the president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women <laughs> and also what it felt like to put that out there for the world? Well, I'll tell you, um, Alicia, a little uh, story because, you know, you're writing about yourself, but you forget that, well, 
I guess you, you don't really think about how other people saw it. And there's always this thing about, you know, um, what you remember as opposed to like your sister or your mother. Yeah. And so when I had the memoir finally done and felt good about it, I sent it to my mother and my sister and a couple best friends. And my mother called me in the middle of the night. I was, I mean, we just only had the three hour time difference, but she was up late, you know. Um, so she <laughs> called me about 3.30 in the morning. And she was like, you can't print that. And that was chapter four. Um, Because, you know, I talk about the violence in the home that I grew up in. Um, And the the honest truth is that once my mother finally left my dad, we never talked about it again. We, like each other in the family, never had a conversation about it. And we certainly didn't share that with anyone else outside of um, the family. And so this was the first time I really talked about it. And I just really thought it was important, Alicia, to include that because I think people sometimes think about why people are in these social movements and why it's important. And I talk about the spark in chapter two, like how do social movements start? And it's personal. And so I felt it was necessary to talk about why I'm in this. And that was personal. But my mom, it's my mom's story, you know, and I... I forgot that. And so I told her, oh my God, her reaction. I was like, I'm not going to print it. Then I'll I'll replace that chapter. I had some other ones and many other ones that kind of fell out. And I told her I had another one that I could put in. And she called me back, let's say 6 a.m. So three hours <laughs> later. And she said, you got to print it. <laughs> that's, like, that's incredible. Totally 360 in three hours. She finished the book um, that night. She read it in one night and she came back and she said, "I, you have to, it, it, it is so important to the book. And, yeah. um, and she said, and to be honest, she felt like it was my story to tell. She said, this is not for me to, you know, to hide. And she actually was felt good. She thought about people at church, you know, her best friends who she has best friends who didn't even know what she went through. Wow. And so that was just a, you know, it was a process for us, both of us to put it out there. And the first time I read it, Alicia, because, you know, I've been doing readings with the book, right. was at the Rockefeller Foundation. And I was quite nervous about doing it, but I just thought it was so important. I usually read the intro mm-hmm. or some other section of the book, but that was the first time I did it. And it was so well received. People, I mean, literally, you know, were coming up to me afterwards, talking about their own stories and their own lives and just really appreciative of me sharing that part. So I now feel a lot easier about it. But every time you relive, you know, what is a very difficult part of your life and part of yourself, and it gets easier as you go along and very therapeutic, honestly. I I imagine it is. I mean, I, I have certainly found one of the best things about writing a memoir is that you kind of put your like most, you know, the inner self that a lot of people don't see, the things you might be a little bit ashamed about, the secrets, whatever they might be. And then you find when you're starting to hear from readers that other people have had those experiences and you sharing them empowers them to share their own story or think about it in a different way. I mean, it's it's like pretty amazing. I think that that is. is able to happen. And it really feels like a gift because it can be so hard to air anything out. And I mean, my fa- my family, my dad's side of the family has this text like chat group. And mm-hmm. anytime I write anything, my dad sends it. And inevitably it gets like 45 responses. No, no, that's not right. <laughs> we didn't leave Cuba in 66. We left Cuba in 65. Right. No, no, no. Your grandmother was wearing brown shoes that day. I'm absolutely sure. There's always a battle about it. And so that. now, now I'm just like, okay. <laughs> Try my best yeah. to get the facts, and then I'm not going to text the group because I got to put them on mute sometimes. 
I definitely got that from my friends. They were like, that was not in that year. And you you were dating touch and touch after this. And, you know, you're like, okay. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Now, yeah. when you were growing up, did you consider yourself a feminist? Is that a word that you used to describe yourself? Yeah, no, the, the whole word feminist was difficult for me growing up because I think that initial time, and I, I probably was like in grade, still in grade school, but like maybe sixth grade doing a report on the um, ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment in the U.S. And that's where I first read that word in, in the description of it and the people that are, you know, sort of behind the Gloria Steinem's and others. And so I, but my grandmother, I when I was reading it, I thought, of her. And so I went to go talk to her and I'm like, are you a feminist? You know, she's <laughs> like, she literally just stared at me. I was like, hell no. Why? You know, she's like, no, feminists are, are not like us. They're, they're like white people that yeah. live on, you know, they, they live on the East side and they, they have a lot of money and they don't have to do much. You know, we're, we're people that have to, that have to work and um, we can't be feminists. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, that's what it is. And so that was the impression that I always had. And the, although I've worked within this setting for a long time, I never really encountered. So the other thing the book did for me and ultimately why I named it that was gave me another definition of feminist. Because to be frank with you, throughout my career, the women I met were more like my grandmother and less like a Gloria Steinem. You yeah. know? So, and of course, my love with Sojourner Truth and who, you know, now looking through a lot of history, you know, is quintessentially, you know, the probably one of the yeah. first feminists in the world yeah. um, who actually helped, you know, with the terminology to popularize it. And of course, you know, her story is amazing. And, and coming out now, I think there's actually a, maybe a net. Netflix special. So, you know, for me, it was like trying to battle uh, my relationship with that word based yeah. on what my grandmother told me and what I've seen and what I've learned and what I know. And so for me, it's a bit of reclaiming that the truth of that word and its real definition. I think one of the amazing things you do in the book is that you describe so many people and then you sort of finished with, you know, X is an everyday feminist. Innocent is an everyday feminist. You know, Elaine is an everyday feminist. And it it kind of blows open this narrow definition of what it has to be. I think you've really succeeded in that because you're also bringing in indigenous rights activists and racial justice activists and all sorts of people, whether they fit neatly into what that kind of Gloria Steinem ideal is. Yeah. So I think you do a really good job of making that word feel more inclusive. And in fact, making the book feel inclusive and feel like it is, you know, there's there's room for everybody to come in and be part of this movement. And it's like a hopeful and optimistic yeah. book, I think. I got that after it. I sometimes read books about our wider sector and feel very depressed. And that was not the case when reading your book. So thanks for that. I'm grateful. And not even with the interviews, right? One thing I've learned and just a characteristic of everyday feminists is that you can't harp on the past because it's going to make get into the future very difficult. Yeah. These are women who have experienced a great deal of stress and, and hardship, but who keep seeing the, you know, the possibility. So for me, that is, again, is the, every, you know, the everyday feminist is what my grandmother was, you know, yes, it's been hard. Yes, it's been difficult, but we see, we see a tomorrow that looks a whole lot better. We see a tomorrow that's much more equal, much more hopeful. So that is, I'm glad that you got that out the book because I think 
that again, that is what an everyday feminist is. It's not about, you know, going down to the courthouse and, you know, like having a law passed or any of that. That's great. And that's, but the process of the changing how you feel about, you know, inequality, how you feel about some stress as a human race, we can change, you know, and we can become better. I mean, I think we are. Do you feel like that optimism, that kind of hope is what keeps you going on the tough days because there are even in the book, but certainly in your wider work, some really difficult moments, some sad stories. And, you know, the, the business of justice is never linear. It's never a path that's just going upwards. Sometimes the winds are hard to find. I mean, what do you do just personally to like, make sure you're staying in it and not wanting to pull away or back out? So, you know, it's a, it's a great point. I don't, allow it to get that way, but I am becoming very grounded, just trying to hone in on my practices around meditation and yoga um, and actually realizing how important it was. I think I started yoga just so I could, you know, as a form of exercise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I, know. I can keep in shape, you know? I'm like, we get to lie down at the end of this? That sounds great. Exactly. <laughs> and still be strong exactly. and you know, have a nice tight butt. just worked you know? out. <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I I am now only understanding that because of that practice, I probably have been able to stay so grounded for so long. I've been doing it a while now, but now I've included meditation into it. And then I, you know, so moving, you know, that kind of movement um, has become very important for me. Um, but my, you know, I'm realizing that I have the power of my perception. So when I wake up each day, I really try hard to um, focus on what is the the good path? You know, what are the good things that I can do to not just help the world, but to help myself, you know, you know, energize in some yeah. ways, you know, recharge the battery. And I do it, you know, intentionally every single morning just to just to get me ready to think about what's wonderful. You know, it's wonderful that my uh, child is going off to school. I will miss them incredibly, <laughs> but I am so, so happy for the journey and what we've been through together. So it's it's, you know, it's just how you can look at it. You know, that's, that that's what I focus on. Yeah. Here you are dropping all these little pearls of wisdom that I'm going to be pulling out of this podcast left and right. I mean, that is like my eternal struggle with my children to try to get them to understand that the only thing they really can control is how they face the world every day and how they show Absolutely. up for people and how they show up for the things they care about because there are so many other things that are out of their control. But when uh, they're being dragged out of bed by the ankles sometimes, <laughs> They don't quite quite see it that way. All right. You have to indulge me for a second in getting like a little bit uh, Mm -hmm. philanthropy wonky because this Mm -hmm. is a subject that is important to me. Sure. And I couldn't actually believe like reading your book, which was just written quite recently, that we're still at this horrible statistic of women's organizations receiving less than 1% of funding from the global philanthropic community. I started working in this space in 2005 and mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure maybe it was like maybe it's like point something, but I'm I'm kind of shocked that that number has not changed and shifted. And you know the facts are there. The return on investment of investing in women and what is going to happen to the world when you do it's all there. What do you think it's going to take to move the needle in a significant way from where we are right now? 
Well, and and I'll just say, Alicia, that I was looking at the difference between the 22 and the 21 numbers for OECD. And so, but that's broader than the philanthropic community. That's mm-hmm. sort of all money that's being right. um, transferred from the global north to the global south. And, and so we're trending down, you know, slightly, but we're already so small. That's a hard right. thing. To, uh, <laughs> Yeah. So we're not just trending down on and those numbers are, are talking about, you know, support that goes to uh, grassroots women's organizations specifically. Mm-hmm. But if you look overall at gender equality, which, you know, governments and philanthropies get to list anything that has to do with women, you know, in general, that's still trending down. And so I'm a little I am a little bit concerned. And part of what I am thinking, you know, to the question, what do we have to do is we are going to have to start holding people accountable. I think right now, you know, we go through this thing where if it's sexy, we kind of like, you know, everybody talks about it. Everybody's, you know, we're localization and, you know, women this or racial that. And so people sort of create the narrative, but then don't see it through. Mm-hmm. Um, they pivot and start. And right now we're in an interesting place, right? So, you know, uh, and I'll talk specifically about the, uh, you know, just about a little case of what's going on in the U.S. around uh, boards, serving on boards. Mm-hmm. So there was a, in California, you know, with all the corporations talking about, you know, ha- adding more women, adding more people of color to their boards. There was sort of a movement to try to make that happen, thinking about ESG and the benefit of having diversity for so many reasons that we don't even need to talk Mm -hmm. about. But then that case was challenged and it was shot down. And there was a sense, so both both, you know, first the race, you know, having a diverse racial, uh, at least, and I think it was like, you need at least one person on your board that comes wow. from a background, right? <laughs> and then the other one was like, at least one woman, you know, both of those got shot down. And then we had the affirmative action case. So you could see where it's going, right? And that was academia. But now I heard that there was a letter that was sent to the top 100, you know, firms in the um, U.S., talking about this issue of ESG and um, diversity and hires and stuff like that to kind of scare them, I guess, you know. Um, but these are people from power, with power um, who are writing these letters. And so from an organization that, let's say in 2020, you know, less than two years ago, two, three years ago, maybe started, you know, really a journey, because it's a journey mm-hmm. towards diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and thinking about ESG as a part of how they deliver on their corporate governmental, whatever, you know, academia promises. And now they're starting to sort of back down. And I think this is now the time when we push forward, because I think it's only in the times of when things are are looking fairly bad that you have the opportunity to really lean in. So we have all of the statements. We have all of the promises almost to the dollar. You know, we're going to put a hundred million to getting this, you know, to doing that. And I think if we don't, if we don't really lean in now and hold them to that, at the very least embarrass them about what they said and what they haven't done, then I think we're going to be in trouble. And I think that is the thing, everyday feminists, and I'll just go back to the book a Mm -hmm. little bit, are constantly doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult for them to kind of look back and say, well, you said you were going to do X and you didn't do it. Instead, we're trying to find the new opportunities. We're trying to deliver on what is required from for the community right now. So I am very keen on, on trying to figure out how we hold, hold that accountability piece strongly, firmly um, in order for us to move forward. Because what's happening is that people are okay doing it 
when it's helpful for them. Right. They're not so okay doing it when you're past the moment. And so unless we insist that they do it, and just quickly, Alicia, at the UN, we're trying to do this because we saw at the UN, there's lots of promises that were made for generation equality and all, all mm-hmm. other kind of things. So it's like $60 billion was dedicated in 2021 towards gender equality. But what happens is you they they kind of self-report. So, right. you know, my company is like, we're going to put like half a billion dollars towards making sure that women enter the workplace. And then two, four or five years later, someone asks, did you do that? And they're like, yes, we did. So what I'm trying to do is change that a little bit or at least match it. OK, you can self-report. But now we're actually in 14 countries trying to get civil society to be the ones who answered yeah. the question, did they do it? And not just, you know, asking the government who promised, you know, a billion dollars. It's like civil society. Did you feel it? Was there yeah. anything? Is there any impact you, on your yeah. life? Anything, really you know, anything that. at all. So now I just want accountability to we change the way we do it. It's not accountability self-accountability. It's accountability to the people who are are actually requiring and needing that support from you. I love that. And I'm remembering I worked at a big bank and their sustainability team uh, in mm. the late part of the first decade of the 2000s and mm. was helping them write a CGI commitment at the time. Uh-huh. CGI was like the big thing and they yes, were going to... Yes. And I remember they, we were like what's a big number? What's what's a really big number that we can put out there? And the commitment they ended up with was educating 1 million people around mm-hmm. HIV and AIDS. And no one had put any thought into how that was actually going to be executed at all. But a million seemed like such a good number, good number. to go yeah. on stage with. And, you know, I was like 26 years old and I was just mm-hmm. thinking, I'm like, where are the people that are like, think? Gonna, where's the person that's going to be like, oh, hey, how are we going to make this happen? Or should we actually commit to this if we're not going to do it? No, there was like nobody there doing that. We were all just like, a million, a million is so great. So I think that accountability piece is so important and feels like a way that people can be supporting the work of everyday feminists, which you talk about in the book. And you make this really bold statement in the preface, which I loved. You say, not every and likely not most everyday feminists will want support directly or indirectly from those that read this book. And it made me immediately think of when Half the Sky came out and there was Uh all of this like, yes, we're going to support women and girls. We need to pour all of this money into all of these organizations. And there was this kind of trajectory that we were supposed to go on, right? It was like read, feel, and then give. And you subvert that in your book. And I want you to explain this to the reader because I think it's important. I think it's fascinating. And I think a lot of very well-meaning people are asking the question now of how can I be a better ally in this movement? Yes. So what is your an- what is your answer for them? Yeah. And and it's um it's really, really important for us to find our space. Um, but I, I will tell you from the everyday feminist point of view, they've been burned often. I, you know, it's so weird. Like people are like, oh, well, they, you know, there's no, we, we can't fund them because they, they don't have enough experience. Their organization has only been here. Most of these women have been doing this for so long, from the time they were, you know, certainly in school, it is not a characteristic that you like wake up at 40 and start, you know, (laughs) it's like who they are, you know? And so they've been doing this work and I think they've been burned often, you know, from the the way the system has been set up. And, you know, the systems of oppression that follow 
you know, the last few centuries, you know, of, you know, the human yes. <laughs> life are, are still very entrenched and very difficult to change. And so many of these uh, everyday feminists, you know, have learned the hard way that taking money from particular organizations, from governments, um, lead to a string of disasters that they are not interested in engaging in anymore. Uh, Deegan Ali, who runs Adesso, talks about this and decolonize it. You know, she talks about this a lot, she, you know, on around decolonization, around how their organization um, took a USAID grant and they support Somalian refugees in Kenya and other places um, in, uh, in Africa. And they went from, you know, doing that 100% of the time to now only doing it 50% of the time because the other 50% was spent on writing reports and engaging the donor and blah, 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 you know. And so I think, uh, and, you know, from her perspective, it's like it wasn't worth it. And she it was a regret, you know, it, it, it meant you expanded the pot. But at the end of the day, you kind of, you know, most of that money was spent on appeasing the needs of the organization that gave you the money. And so that's what I'm trying to look at. And, I, you know, I don't I want you to give, you know, so, yeah, you know, don't stop giving, and give. <laughs> don't stop giving. But but change the way you do that. Stop thinking of it as charity, thinking of it of more of an investment. And the work that these folks are doing means that you don't really need a whole lot of engagement. You don't, you know, you don't need them to report every blah, blah, blah. You don't need them to count the widgets and the heads and things like that. So you just have to change the way you see progress happening and what impact means for you and risk, you know? And so those are the things that I'm trying to say in the book, because at the end of the day, if you are going to put a lot of challenges on the everyday feminists to do the work that they're doing, they they no longer can do the work. And so be very, very careful that you're not actually doing the opposite of what you think you you want it to do. Yes. So, yeah. I love that. Latanya, this has been such an amazing chat. If you are listening to this, you can pick up The Everyday Feminist where books are sold. And there is a fantastic list in the back of the book of some incredible women's funds that you could be putting your money if you're looking to give. And I have just loved this. I'm feeling really good. I didn't, this was my extra shot. I didn't even need that second copy. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> That's a great compliment. Yes. It's been fun, Alicia. And I really appreciate you doing this and loved, you know, your what if a year concept. I haven't read the book yet, but certainly, you know, put I already ordered it because, you know, of, you. of this conversation <laughs> of just here. So I didn't get it, but really looking forward to that. And just the the idea of, you know, going back and doing what you want, I think is so, it's such a characteristic of everyday feminists. So welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Before I let you go today, I want to remind you one more time about our partner Evolve Me's upcoming reinvention collective starting on October 24th. If you need more convincing, here's what a few women who have attended had to say. I learned so much about myself, my strengths, and my goals. I was able to refresh both my resume and LinkedIn profile and feel more confident and ready to launch my next chapter. That was Susan. The Reinvention Collective was an enriching experience that helped me organize my thinking around my next career steps and infused it with hope, positivity, and a sense of agency. And that was from Gosia. And don't forget, if you add the code SPECIAL at checkout, you can save $500 on your tuition. And I wish you the best of luck on whatever stage in your career journey you are on. 
Thanks so much for tuning in today to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. A special shout out to the team at Texture Sound for all their support. If you're in the mood for more of me, pick up a copy of my What If Year, which is out now in bookstores everywhere. Sign up for my mailing list on aliciafmiranda.com or find me on Instagram at aliciafmiranda. I can promise news, views, and memes about Gilmore Girls. If you have feedback, ideas for upcoming segments, burning questions, things you need advice on, please reach out. And otherwise, we'll catch you on the next Extra Shot.